Section 21 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. The Second Triumvirate. Octavius, Antonius, and Lepidus. Part 2. The helpless upstart of the year before was now actually at the head of affairs, and could offer his own terms to whichever of the contending parties he should choose for his ally. While causing the hasty decrees of the Senate against Antonius and Lepidus to be rescinded, he made them overtures which were readily accepted. Placed between these two chiefs and their respective powers, abandoned by Plancus, receiving no support from Octavius and the government at Rome, Decimus was lost. His troops, which had been easily levied, not less easily deserted him. The old military devotion to the general was utterly forgotten, even among the followers of a republican standard. With a few horsemen he attempted to break away into Macedonia through the passes of the Rhetian Alps, but he was baffled by the mountaineers, and was delivered by a chief named Camellus into the hands of Antonius, by whom he was put to death. The blood of the tyrannicide cemented the alliance between the friend and the heir of the tyrant. Towards the end of October, the Caesarian leaders Antonius, Lepidus, and Octavius, each at the head of independent, if not of equal forces, met near Bononia on an islet in the broad channel of a shallow stream called the Rhenus, and there deliberated on the fate of the vanquished and the partition of the common spoil. It was arranged between them, after three days' parley, that Octavius should resign the consulship in favour of Ventidius, a rude but trusty officer of the Antonian army, while the three superior chiefs should reign in partnership together over the city, the consuls, and the laws. They claimed the consular power without the official title, in common for a period of five years with the right of appointing to all the magistracies their decrees were to have the force of law without requiring the confirmation of the senate or the people to this extraordinary commission if we may so entitle a usurpation to which no other power but themselves was a party they gave the name of a triumvirate or board of three for constituting the commonwealth the appointment of boards similarly designated for special purposes was an arrangement well known to the Roman constitution. The quindecemvirs, the septemvirs, and the severs were each a permanent college for the discharge of certain sacred functions. The decemvirs of famous memory had been specially charged with the settlement of the civil law of the state and with its temporary government while that settlement was pending. All of these had emanated directly from the suffrage of the people and held their power subject to the popular will. But the triumvirate now established owned no such popular origin and bore no such elective character. It was an open and willful usurpation. It was a provisional government, as we might now call it, self-appointed in the first instance, standing upon its own basis, propped by an armed force, holding out indeed a prospect of self-surrender at some future time, 
but prepared meanwhile to assert its own arbitrary authority and require universal obedience to it the so-called triumvirate of caesar pompeius and crassus had made no such public or patent assertion of conjoint power the earlier triumvirs obtained the title rather as a nickname than as indicating an established fact they held similar power to that of their successors but they put forth no actual profession of it the idea of a roman tyranny had made great advances in the popular mind during the fifteen years which had intervened it was the partition of absolute power between three instead of its concentration in the hands of a single chief that constituted the only essential difference between the despotism of the triumvirs and the despotism of a king the promise to resign the appointment at the end of five years was perceived to be merely illusory the only hope the citizens could entertain of its fulfilment lay in the dissension which might be expected to prevail between the three co-equal occupants and so it was that the alliance of the triumvirs came indeed to a rapid end but the end as might have been equally well foreseen was not the restoration of the popular government but the consolidation of an absolute monarchy meanwhile according to the first partition made between them the two gauls fell to antonius the spains with the narbonensis to lepidus africa and the islands of sicily and sardinia to octavius italy itself the seat of empire the three were to retain in common while the eastern provinces now held by brutus and cassius they left for future division when the enemy should be expelled from them against this enemy war was to be at once declared octavius and antonius each with twenty legions charged themselves with the conduct of the war and agreed to leave lepidus the least ambitious and least stirring of the confederates but a man of high position great wealth and wide connections to maintain their combined interest in the city the swordsmen who followed them with no public or patriotic principles were merely held together by the hopes of plunder or at best by the military instinct of confidence in their leaders ample gratuities were poured into their hands and estates assigned them from the lands of eighteen of the cities of italy the war was to be carried beyond the limits of the peninsula but it was the peninsula itself which suffered the first and perhaps the worst effects of civil dissension the troops however were satisfied with their share in the common compact and insisted that it should be ratified by the espousal of octavius to the daughter whom fulvia had borne to her first husband the tribune clodius the triumvirs now addressed an order to padius at rome for the slaughter of seventeen of their principal adversaries the houses of these selected victims were attacked at night and most of them had fallen before their condemnation was notified to the citizens padius a brave and honourable man died from horror and disgust at the crime he was imperiously required to execute octavius antonius and lepidus then entered the city on three successive days each attended by a single legion the temples and towns were occupied by the troops the banners of the conquerors waved in the forum 
and cast their ominous shadow over the heads of the assembled citizens. A plebiscitum was required to give a bare semblance of legality to an usurpation which had been already effected. On November 27th, 43 B.C., the triumvirate was proclaimed. The potentates, about to quit Rome to combat the murderers of Caesar in the east, would leave no enemies in their rear. They decreed not a massacre such as Sulla's, but a formal proscription. Sitting with a list of chief citizens before them, each picked out the names of the victims he personally required. Each purchased the right to proscribe a kinsman of his colleagues by surrendering one of his own. The fatal memorial was headed with the names of a brother of Lepidus, an uncle of Antonius, and a cousin of Octavius. Again were enacted the brutal scenes which closed the civil wars of the last generation. Centurions and soldiers were dispatched in quest of the most important victims. The pursuit was joined by mercenary cutthroats and private enemies. Slaves attacked their masters and debtors their creditors. The heads of the victims were affixed to the rostra to certify the claims of the murderers, but the triumvirs themselves did not always pause to identify them. The cold and unnatural cruelty of some of these assassinations has made them more peculiarly odious, even amidst the many butcheries of the Roman civil wars. It would seem, however, that the proscribed were not in all cases hotly pursued. Many crossed the sea to Macedonia, others into Africa. Still more took refuge on board the vessels with which Sextus Pompeius was cruising off the coast of Italy. Some escaped by bribery when entreaty failed, and Octavius seems in some cases to have set his own leniency in contrast with the more brutal ferocity of his associates. But Antonius had demanded the death of Cicero, and Octavius to the horror of all time, had consented. Nevertheless, some opportunity was given even to Cicero to effect his escape, and he was not overtaken till a month later. Marcus Cicero was at the moment with his brother Quintus at his Tusculan villa. On the first rumor of the proscription, they fled and gained Astura, another of the orator's residences on a little island off Antium. From thence they proposed to embark for Macedonia. Quintus, indeed, was promptly seized and slain. But the surviving fugitive reached the sea, set sail again, landed again, again embarked and landed once more at Formiae, worn out with distress of mind and suffering from sickness. In vain was he warned of the danger of delay. Let me die, he exclaimed, in my fatherland, which I have so often saved. But his slaves now lifted him with gentle violence into his litter and hurried him toward the coast. Scarcely had the house been quitted when an officer named Popilius, a client, it was said, whose life Cicero had saved, approached and thundered at the closed doors. A traitor pointed out the direction which the fugitive had taken, and Cicero had not yet reached the beach when he saw the pursuers gaining upon him. His own party was numerous and would have fought in his defense, but he forbade them. He bade his slaves set down the litter, 
and with his eyes fixed steadily on the murderers, offered his throat to the sword. Some covered their faces with their hands, and their agitated leader drew his blade thrice across it before he could sever the head from the body. The bloody trophy was carried to Rome and set up by Antonius in front of the rostra. He openly exulted in the spectacle and rewarded the assassins with profuse liberality. Fulvia, the wife of Antonius and the relic of Clodius, pierced, it is said, the tongue with a needle, in revenge for the sarcasms it had uttered against both her husbands. In the circumstances both of his life and death, Cicero has been compared to Demosthenes. Each struggled for his country against an enemy and a tyrant, and each was proscribed and hunted to death for the eloquence with which he had assailed him. Each battled for a cause which was really hopeless, for both Athens and Rome had forfeited the power of maintaining their own freedom, perhaps we may say the right to contend for it. But if the crimes of Roman society were more glaring than those of the Athenian, which was imbecile rather than furious, there were at least some great and noble characters in the Senate who might dignify the struggle, however hopeless. Among the magnates of the city to whom Cicero introduces us in his letters and his speeches, there were men of virtue and honor, true lovers of their country, and admirers of patriotism such as his own. They lacked perhaps the genuine devotion of the older days, and with the single exception it may be said of Cato, have left us no historic examples of public virtue. The best among them were no doubt more conscious of the false position in which they were placed, by the corruption of their own adherents and the evil temper of the times. But the best of them were indeed among the weakest in character, and least capable of influencing the multitude around them. Cicero himself was not, except once or twice, for a moment only, a real power in the state. But he has left as statesman an example of sincere patriotism to which the lovers of public virtue may always point with exaltation. To the last, he never deserted his place as a citizen. He has enriched human history with the portrait which the gods were said to admire of a good man struggling with adversity, and the respect in which his own countrymen held him both in his own time and in later generations, is a redeeming feature in the hard and selfish character of the Roman people. Such were the atrocities and horrors with which the year B.C. 43 closed. Lepidus and Plancus, who next entered on the consulship, commanded the people, still full of dismay and mourning, to celebrate the commencement of their reign with mirth and festivity. They demanded the honor of a triumph, for victories about which our annals are silent, in Gaul and Spain. Both the one and the other had sacrificed their own brother in the proscription. And when the fratricides passed along in their chariots, the soldiers, it is said, with the usual camp license, chanted as they followed, the consul's triumph, not over the Gauls, but the Germans, that is, their brothers. The massacres had now ended, but a course of confiscation commenced. All the inhabitants of Rome and Italy were required to lend a tenth of their fortunes and to give the whole of one year's income. 
the consuls proposed an oath to the citizens to maintain all caesar's enactments and they proceeded to accord to him divine honours by an oriental fiction unknown at least to the romans since the legendary days of romulus the triumvirs followed their hero's example in assigning all the chief magistracies for several years in advance octavius undertook to drive sextus out of sicily where he had established himself under the protection of a flotilla manned by pirates and adventurers but the passage of the narrow straits was too strictly guarded antonius crossed without delay to the coast of epirus End of section 21